0: Hello listeners, we would like to introduce you to our newest producer of CNUSD EdChat. That's right. World, meet Jenny. Hi, Jenny. Hello. I'm happy to be part of the team. All right. Well, can you first tell our listeners just a little bit
1: about yourself? Okay. Um, I have taught at the high school level, at the intermediate level here in our district. And before that, I've been a paraeducator, secretary and a clerk. Yeah. So not only has she done everything, she's also smart, creative, and an amazing addition to our team. (laughs) Well, that's all they really need to know. (laughs) Okay. So let's get started. Jenny, why don't you introduce our next episode? Okay. I'd love to. In this episode, Ivy chats with Dr. Tyrone Howard. Dr. Howard is a professor of education and associate dean for equity and inclusion at UCLA. He is also the author of Why Race and Culture Matters in Schools, Closing the Achievement Gap in America's Classrooms.
0: That's right, and we recorded our chat with Dr. Howard last summer at our CNUSD equity conference. Let's take a listen.
1: So I am a product of Compton, California born and raised. was fortunate enough to have a mother and father who stressed education at the highest levels. And oftentimes what I say is that my mother set a tone in the household. She told my brother and I that there was nothing we could not do if we put our minds to it. Mm-hmm. And she told us how much she believed in us. And she told us she expected us to go to college. It wasn't when, it was if. Mm-hmm. So my mother was the person who just built us up. My father was the person who set the work ethic, right? Okay. got us up. We're going to go cut grass. We're going to go empty trashes. We're going to go recycle bottles. And so having someone who believes in you, coupled with someone who shows you what work ethic looks like, was the perfect combination for me to be able to understand the importance of of having someone push you, but push you with love. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that we don't get enough of. So I attended Compton Public Schools and uh, did not always have the good fortune of having teachers who had that same embodiment. So there was... This dissonance of sorts. Well, mm-hmm. mama said I could do it, but now I'm working to a classroom, with teacher saying I can't do it. And it was having my mother always come back to tell me how smart you were, how amazing you were, mm-hmm. how how phenomenal you were. And so so much of that I think helped to explain why I was able to experience schools the way that I did. But I cannot stress enough how many other young people, and this mm-hmm. was a community that was predominantly black and brown, just were just humiliated under the, the crush of just low expectations that teachers have for them. Or just dehumanized by teachers who just did not give them an opportunity to be the best they could be. And so I felt like I had a buffer of sorts that really made a big difference for me. And so that stayed with me throughout my K-12 schooling experiences. Uh, when I went to college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was just told to go to college, but uh-huh. not really about what to do next. As I got close to graduating from UC Irvine, where I went to undergraduate, ed- uh, where I did my undergraduate schooling, Teaching just kind of popped up in my head, and I thought there could be no better way to give back to others than to teach. And so I taught in Compton for five years before I went to pursue my doctorate, but it was there where I started to really understand some of the real structural inequalities or Mm -hmm. inequities that exist in schools. Having the opportunity to teach in the same district where I had attended, Mm -hmm. it was just an eye-opener to see some of the same textbooks still in those classrooms, some of the same non-caring teachers in those schools. So um, for me, it became about what do we do to give back? And I felt like I was fortunate enough to have folks invest in me and that it was important Uh, for me to invest in those who came after me.
0: I would like to know a little bit about your your research. And a large part of it and the work that you do is in the field of educational equity for disenfranchised youth. So can you tell us how did you begin the work in this area? You spoke about that a little bit a few moments ago, but like what steps did you take first?
1: So one of the things I oftentimes say is that research is me-search. And I believe that for me, the research that I do is tied to my own personal experiences. And I mentioned growing up in a community where there were a lot of black and brown and poor kids who, in my opinion, had amazing intellect, who had incredible potential, who had all kinds of smarts that just were not always recognized in schools. And so those experiences stay with me because even as I moved into teaching, you still saw these black and brown and poor kids who were not being given the opportunities to show what they were capable of doing. Mm -hmm. And so my whole research agenda is tied to this idea that black and brown and poor kids have just as much potential and just as much promise as any group of students, but that we as schools sometimes stifle that creativity. We stifle that innovation. We stifle the way that kids oftentimes ask questions and think about Mm -hmm. relationships and connections. So my research has been about not how we fix kids, because I don't think kids need to be fixed. I think it's about how we begin to fix the way we do schools and begin Mm -hmm. to help folks who are in schools to become better. And so much of my work has been working with teachers around understanding what they know, what they do around cultural and racial differences. One of the big challenges is the fact that we have a large percentage of our students are oftentimes non-white, but a large number of our teachers are white. There's a big Mm. cultural disconnect that teachers who are well-intentioned just don't understand the students that they teach. And so much of my work around culturally responsive pedagogy is that how do you help those teachers understand the kinds of cultural capital, cultural ways of knowing cultural ways of being that kids bring to the classroom. Every single kid brings to the classroom. Mm-hmm. And so part of that has been how do we help teachers understand that and if they understand that, can they do better? I believe if folks do better, if they know better they do better. But I have to say I'm just being frank here and you know this all too well I mean, that the issue becomes many of our classroom teachers just don't believe in some students' abilities to learn. And that's a big problem. Mm-hmm. As you and I talked about before, how do we mandate care?
0: how do yes. we mandate
1: love yeah how do we mandate this sense of radical kinship when when i look at a student i see him or her as no different than i would see my own son or my own daughter mm-hmm. or my own grandchild or whatever it might be
0: mm mm-hmm. and that connects exactly to what you're saying as far as assets and not deficits because when we look at our own kids we know that they have assets mm-hmm. you know it's just something that intrinsic that we feel that we believe it's not even something that we discuss and that's despite you know all their little foibles or you know idiosyncrasies. We still never think that they don't have assets. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it's something that just comes. With and the it.
1: work has to be centered around the idea that what can I do as a teacher that is going to bring out the best in every student? That mm-hmm. no matter how challenging that child is, there's something there that is redeeming, that recognizes resilience, that's centered on this child's potential. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. you just have to go into the work thinking that way. And I think part of it is is, is convincing teachers that every student has that, because I'm convinced Mm -hmm. that that's not always the case.
0: In your book, Why Race and Culture Matter in Schools, you explain why the concept of culture should really be an integral part of um, discussion on school reform and closing the achievement gap even though many educators you know are are still working under the auspices of you know well I'm colorblind it would be better for me to be colorblind and they typically avoid you know these types of of mm-hmm. conversations mm-hmm. we we see the conversations really starting to come into effect around culture but race is still kind of mm-hmm. a a dirty mm-hmm. a dirty word mm-hmm. so Can you talk about, you know, some of the research that you've done on the actual influence of culture Mm -hmm. on learning and how race is tied into that?
1: Yeah. One of the things we do, we tend to have a very superficial understanding of culture. So we tend to think of culture as food and festivals and Mm -hmm. holidays, which is certainly a part of culture. But there's a deeper level of culture that I think we oftentimes don't get into. And I think we're all at the core cultural beings. We are Mm -hmm. shaped and everything we do is culturally mediated from the way we dress, the way we talk, the way we think, who we befriend, what we like, what we don't like, who Mm -hmm. we admire, how we... You know, connect ourselves to the work we do. We're all cultural beings, and I think what happens is that we don't understand the, the intricacies involved in culture, and we have students who walk into classrooms where they're expecting to somehow leave their culture at the door. Mm. I think what we like to do is put students in boxes. We need you to think this way, talk this way, act this way, behave this way. And many of our students are saying, well, guess what? The way that I think, talk, behave, and act are very different than what you want me to do, and Uh hence we have this cultural disconnect. So it's important for teachers to begin to expand what that box looks like and think about what do we do to create cultural democracies where different ways of knowing, different ways of thinking, different ways of speaking, different ways of understanding, different ways of expression are just as valid as other ways are because then students get to bring from home all their cultural capital, and it becomes a conduit to learning, right? We Mm -hmm. expect students, like I said, to leave that at the door and learn our way and process our way. And I think that's a big problem. But I think what happens is that we tend to, again, get caught up with the race stuff, Mm. which I think we need to do. But the racial piece is so important because we have a lot of negative baggage around race. We look at Mm. people's skin color, and we assume a lot of things. And so I think that we have to talk race, and cultural capital, because I think they both are critical. Mm -hmm. I think we, I mean, you are spot on about the fact that we have lots of teachers who say, I don't see color, I see children, which to me is just a big, big, big falsehood, right? (laughs) We see color every single day Mm -hmm. when young people walk in our classrooms. And I'm saying, what is it that teaches us and tells us that we don't want to think And talk and act through a racial lens and once we do that i think that will help us get to issues of culture but i just think at the end of the day we avoid race we superficialize culture and when we get down to it we don't do either one much justice when it comes to educating our Mm -hmm. kids despite the fact we live in a state california where there's Mm -hmm. more kids of color than there are white children and i think it's just a basic imperative type of ingredient that teachers are going to have to have if they want to do this work in this state with this population of students we have.
0: And I think I can see the rationale behind why someone uh, might say that, I don't see color. I understand the intent. It's like that 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 point that it gets to where it becomes detrimental by you saying that and how it is affecting your actions and, and your beliefs and what is it tied to at, at your core. Mm-hmm. I presume a lot of it is also around fear. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, those who who really have good intentions, but because of a fear of of social blowback or just saying the wrong thing or what have you, conversations around race have become really volatile in a lot of situations. Yeah, I
1: I think race has been this lightning rod in our nation's right. history
0: right and right. it's
1: never been an easy topic but mm-hmm. i think that there was a way in which we could avoid it years ago because we were still a predominantly white nation mm-hmm. well now we're no longer a predominantly white nation and our schools 2014 marked the first time we became a more non-white school than a white school mm-hmm. i mean then, then, then in terms of the the demographics we have more non-white students than white students That means we have to have the conversations because we have students who see themselves very clearly through a racial lens. And I think we cannot afford to say, hmm. I don't want to be called racist. I don't want to be thought of it as racist, so let me just avoid race altogether because mm-hmm. you have black and brown children who live in societies that will continuously remind them that they are black and brown. And I think teachers do a disservice when they don't acknowledge those aspects of those children's identities. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, their parents are telling them. My mother and father would say, look, when you go out there, you're a black boy. You're a black man. You have to understand, if you get stopped by the police. Here's what you need to say. Mm-hmm. So we're being mm-hmm. socialized by many of our parents to say the world sees you through this racial lens. They don't see you through a colorblind lens. And so mm-hmm. I think teachers can help to fortify that process or they can send a different message that I think is really disruptive to how racial identity gets shaped in many children's homes.
0: Many people also use the words culture and ethnicity interchangeably or culture and race interchangeably when indeed they're not. So how do you specifically define culture? You did speak about what it, what it's not. Um, and what are some specific practices that schools can begin to adopt that really show the value Mm -hmm. of having diverse cultures and communities where the schools actually exist?
1: Yeah, so I always say that we make the mistake of assuming people who are the same racially or the same culturally, and there's some overlap, but oftentimes we have to make very clear that just because we are the same racially that we can be very different culturally Uh and just because we're very different culturally we can be very similar racially so it's really complicated and I think what schools can do is we have to watch students we have to listen to students Mm -hmm. we have to learn from students are expressing their culture every single day Mm -hmm. from the way they walk into our classrooms to the compliments that they give you from the words that they speak from the ways that they understand content that's all a part of what we're doing i always tell teachers if you want to understand who students are culturally you have to become an observer you have to become an anthropologist that means talking to parents Mm -hmm. walking through those neighborhoods it always pains me to hear teachers say that they never spent much time in the neighborhoods where their children live i just think that how can you not do that if you want to understand how that child navigates his or her world every single day drive through or walk through the neighborhood for a little while. You learn so much. Or tell your students, help me to understand your neighborhood because Mm -hmm. that's the ecosystem that shapes the cultural capital that students are bringing to classrooms every single day. So I always say that part of what we have to understand is that cultural – Ways of knowing and being require us to suspend our judgment because that, that's oftentimes the big mistake that we make. Well, when, in my culture, we sit down and we all come to the dinner table together and we eat, and that's the way that families are supposed to have dinner. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, that's one way. It's not the only way, right? right? Your children will tell you, well, guess what? In my household, we come we get our plate and we go sit down and we eat individually. It doesn't make one better than the other. It's just the ways in which we oftentimes do things. Another example I frequently give is issues of respect. I grew up at a time, probably you as well, where respect was given to any adult just by Mm. mere fact that she or he was an adult. Mm -hmm. You have young people today who will tell you, well, guess what? You want respect. Right. You got to give it in order to receive it and that's a very different cultural paradigm so i think mm-hmm. that kids are telling us every single day how they see the world how they see themselves how they see themselves positioned in the world and i think there's got to be a little give and take i think we've got to meet students halfway but at the same time we have to help students also understand the culture of power like lisa right. Delpit talks about right. there's some things that you may not want to do but you may have to do or the consequences are always not the best that we want them to be so i think that schools need to have conversations about cultural and cultural ways of knowing and cultural competency and cultural proficiency. And we, be, we need to begin to demonstrate it in classrooms with how young people are interacting, thinking, speaking. But it's not just in the instructional part of this. I think it's also tied to content that students are exposed mm, to. Okay. We still have too many students who look at textbooks or who read novels, who are exposed to literature, where they don't see themselves right. or their histories or their backgrounds being represented. And I think that's a big omission. It sends a powerful message to students about whose histories are important, right. whose histories matter, and whose histories is important whose histories and whose uh, issues don't matter.
0: Mm. With so many changes occurring in 21st century education and learning, Mm -hmm. um, what advice can you give to organizations, teachers, families to try tomorrow, to try this week, and to try this month?
1: I love that question. So I would say for tomorrow is to engage in some self-care. I'm big on self-care for teachers now because this work is hard, mm-hmm. and we expect a lot, and it's becoming increasingly, increasingly difficult. So I would say tomorrow, with tomorrow being a weekend, I'm not sure which day <laughs> this is <will laughs> for air, but t- for tomorrow, uh, take care of yourself. I think that we are better when we are engaged in the process of resting of being able to relax and, and to, to kind of gather our faculty so that we can be better for our students. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say for this week, I would say commit yourself to being better. Commit yourself to recognizing that despite the fact that we have some amazing educators out there, we still have a lot of work to do and there's still young people who are just desperately in need of somebody to take a little bit of time to be with them. So I would say make this week about saying, I'm gonna commit myself to doing this one thing better. right? Okay. And I would say for this month, I'm a big fan of reading. I'm a big fan mm-hmm. of learning. I think as adults, we don't ever stop learning. And I would say for this month, pick up a book that's tied to this work and read it and learn from it. And I'm not going to promote mine. I'm going to say somebody else. <laughs> so I'm reading a book right now by Carla Shalabi called Troublemakers. Okay. And it's a phenomenal read because she says in this book, Troublemakers, that sometimes the very troublemakers that we label as students in schools are the very ones who are telling us what's wrong with schools, yet we don't hmm. listen to them. Okay. They're the ones who she refers to oftentimes as the canaries that are in the coal mine. They're the ones telling us that this classroom is not very affirming, that this classroom is not very nurturing, that this teacher is very toxic. And oftentimes we tend to dismiss those students, but we should listen to them. So I would say find something to read. There are so many good books and so many good works on education that we have to be in the business of trying to expand our minds, mm-hmm. uh, increase our repertoire of what's working, what's not working in schools. So that would be my advice for this month. Read a good book and then share it with somebody else in the field. And if we all started to do that, I think we enhance our understanding of some really complicated issues in a much more profound way.
0: I love it. (laughs) We want to thank you for spending some time with us here on CNUSD EdChat, And we are wishing you the best in spreading your word and inspiring us to continue spreading the word and the work of equity as well. I want
1: to thank you all again for doing this work and continue to push. Equity is not easy. Equity is not comfortable. And let's do this. Our kids need us. Let's do it. Let's do it. Thank you, Dr. Howard, for doing this work. And thank you for sharing your story, your
0: knowledge, and your passion. We also want to take the time to congratulate our friend and our colleague, Dr. Ivy Ewell-Eldridge. Ivy now is an assistant principal in our district, and she's serving our kids and our teachers in a whole new capacity.
1: We are super proud of Ivy, but this means that we will be spending less time with her at CNUSD EdChat.
0: And you, like all of us, I'm sure, are going to miss hearing that smooth, silky voice, as well as all of her intellect. Yes. Hi, my name is Gigi, and I'm in seventh grade. If you would like to comment on their podcast, go to
1: cnusd.k12.ca.us slash edchat. And be sure to follow them on Twitter and Facebook at CNUSD Edchat to let them know the topics you are interested in. If you enjoyed this episode, please help us out by leaving a five-star review. We greatly appreciate your support. Thank you all for listening to another episode of CNUSD Edchat. This episode was written and produced by Ivy Yule Aldridge, Kate Jackson, Kim Kemmer, Anne-Marie Cortez, and me, Jenny Cordura, and edited by Ken Pucci.